Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Hey, listener, Zach Harper here, Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. Also, fastest growing fantasy app in the industry. Here's how it works. The Pick'em Game. Pick whether your favorite players will have a higher or lower stat total in this week's game for a chance to win big. How big, you ask? I'm so glad you asked that question, listener. You can win up to 100 times your money in a single night. Pick between two and five players. Build a pick'em entry. You can also do rivals picks. You can put like Tyrese Halliburton and Jalen Brunson against each other. And whoever has more points, more assists, more rebounds, whatever you want to do, that is your rivals pick. I would maybe go with Jalen Brunson in these playoffs. By the way, in the regular season, Jalen Brunson, scoring tear, going higher on his point totals all the time. Joel Embiid, whenever he did actually play, higher on his scoring totals all the time. Victor Wembanyama for the next 15, 20 years, here's a pro tip for you. Take higher on the blocks. That's right. So you're probably wondering, how do you sign up? Oh my God, listener, you are full of good questions today. Sign up with the promo code DING, that's D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick First time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. $250, man, that's a lot. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the app store. And don't forget to register with our code DING, D-I-N-G, to claim your special pick and first time deposit offer up to $250 in bonus cash. Must be 18 or older, 21 or older in Massachusetts, Arizona, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Arizona, 1-800-NEXT-STEP. That's 1-800-639-8783. Or text next step. To 53342. New York, call the 24 7 Hope Line at 1 877 8 Hope and Y or text Hope and Y 467369. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. 
Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of Woke Bros. Of course, I'm your co-host, Big Waz, a.k.a. Waz D. Lambray, joined as always by my gracious co-host out on the west side of Los Angeles, Nando Vila. What's up, brother? How's it going, baby? I'm good, and today we have a very, very, very special guest, man. I'm excited about this. Y'all know we don't do a lot of guests on here, but when we do... Is best-selling authors and and just overall media <laughs> killers, man. We don't fuck around on this show when we get a guest. Joining us today is senior reporter at the Huffington Post and author of The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, my boy, Zach Carter. Welcome to the show, Zach Carter. Thanks for having me, guys. That's... Uh... I admit, that's the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> well, that's, that's what we do. Over here at Woke Bros, we have the best intros, not the best information, just the best intros. We don't give yeah. a fuck about being smart or right or interesting or provocative or any of those things that you're good at, Zach. We just like having good intros. Yeah. Well, then we'll make a great team. <laughs> awesome, man. Yo, you know, today we wanted to have you on the show because we tend to have a very economics-based show, right? Um, Basically, the issues that affect everyday working people in America, not oligarchs, not people who got cushy-ass jobs within the oligarchy, right? Like people who, you know, don't have a crazy amount of savings and, you know, just barely pay their mortgage or rent or whatever, like normal people. And that's part of your for lack of a better word, beat at the Huffington Post. Could you talk to us about the type of things that you cover at HuffPo? Sure. I, I, my, uh, I, I, was, I was brought in initially to write a newsletter on, uh, on money, and I just, I just never did it. Uh, and instead... <laughs> they, an excellent fail boy already. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> it was like 10 years ago. Uh, this is when Ryan Grimm was the D.C. bureau chief. He hired me. He's at The Intercept now. And, uh, and instead just started writing about, uh, about the Fed and the housing crisis. Um, so this was you know, 2010, 2011. And uh, we were in the middle of the Great Recession. And I, I wrote a lot about the Obama administration's response to the crash, um, which, you know, I was 
most of my coverage was pretty critical of it, um, but also wrote a lot about you know Washington's sort of broad indifference to the crash. The things that the Senate and the House were focused on really had nothing to do with this enormous economic catastrophe that had just hit the entire country. You know, it's not like this was localized to one district or something, and it was like a special favor to some lawmaker. This is a whole country that was really, uh, really falling apart. Uh, and I think a lot of the the sort of crazy uh, craziness of our politics today is a result not only of the crash, but of the inadequate response to it 10 years ago. I think our politics, people saw the country really working for the wrong people at that moment, um, and then saw that sustained for several years um, under an ostensibly very, you know, very liberal progressive president. So that's what I cover. Uh, you know, it's, you know, obviously I don't cover the Obama administration in the age of Trump, but, uh, you know, economic policy and, and how it affects ordinary people. Yeah, and uh, you know when Waz and I were were chatting about doing this episode, um, I I immediately suggested you because he he wanted to talk about he wanted to find someone to talk about, you know, there's a new Biden administration. We're in the middle of an economic crash. It's it's almost like a repeat of 2008 um, in many ways. You know, history happens first as tragedies, then as farce, and this is this feels like that <laughs> for sure. Um, and you know you've. You know, you just wrote this book, uh, The Price of Peace, on John Maynard Keynes um, and his uh, economic philosophy. It's been like, I, I don't know, has there ever been, uh, as since since Piketty's Capital, there's, there hasn't been a, an economics book or an economics history book that has been this kind of um, buzzy, I would say. Um, and, you know, the, one of the problems with the response to the uh, to the 2008 financial crash that the Obama administration did was this obsession with austerity, um, that we had to be uh, fiscally neutral in any response. There was the grand bargain with uh, Mitch McConnell to basically slash Social Security and all, all that stuff. Um, and it feels like that kind of politics is is changing a little bit. Um, I'm, 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 I'm hesitant to say it's been completely changed, but it doesn't feel as hegemonic as it was um, in 2008. So can you describe a little bit of what we can expect you know, as the Biden administration takes power, um, and they and they they too have to respond to an economic crash. Yeah, I think you're right that there's been sort of a change in the intellectual uh, wind among the sort of you know elite policymaking uh, community. Um, the, the people who Obama was listening to in 2009 and 2010, um, when he had to make the most important decisions of of his presidency, at least in terms of the economy, um, you know, were people like Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, who who came from this you know very you know markets know best kind of school of thought and. That's a that's a, a strange crew to rely on when you've just had a financial crisis. You know, I mean, the, the, it's the, the financial crisis is a clear case of markets not working, right, and and wreaking social havoc. Um, but part of that worldview is not only that markets know best, but that if the government intervenes in the economy, like the economy is this thing that exists out here, and the government is something separate, and if the government moves into the economy, it's some that's sort of like an unnatural changing, you know, reordering of, uh, of, of the way the world works, and that that will create distortions and create problems that are, you know, f further down the line. Mm -hmm. So I, I think they believed, yeah, you had to do something because the crash was so deep, but they were very, very careful about, and very cautious about you know, not doing too much. Part of this was due to political fears that they just didn't think they, that Republicans would let them do enough. Uh, but there was a general belief that, you know, if you rescued the banks, the banks would lead the recovery. Not the federal mm. government, mm. and 
Zach, I, I have to ask, I have to interject here. I, I, I have to ask the question, how can you both think, how can someone hold both beliefs that the government should never step into the free market and the banks should be bailed out? I don't understand that. <laughs> if the free market is perfect and always works itself out and the government should never do anything to help anything because the government is bad, 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 and the market is good, 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 how can those people, those Geithner types, how did they um, intellectually justify holding those two thoughts at the same time. It's quite a dance, isn't it? I, I think, you know, on the right, there are people who who hold the view that you just sort of characterized there, that we shouldn't we shouldn't bail out the banks, we shouldn't bail out anybody, we shouldn't <laughs> there should be no no social safety net for anyone. Everyone so, should die. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> and, and I think I think the view of, of the uh, that Elise Geithner held around 2009, 2010 was that, you know, that that is too harsh. That 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 actually leads to to, to huge social problems that you don't come back from. And so instead of instead of letting the whole world burn, they'll, they'll make some adjustments. But uh, but it's, you know, I actually think this is this is something I sort of talked about in 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 the book. I mean, if you take John Maynard Keynes's ideas seriously and you you read what he wrote over the course of his lifetime, I, I think is sort of the, the high point, the most important intellectual contribution he made is, is probably the general theory of employment, interest, and money published in 1937. But he's got a lot of other works that sort of you have to read to understand what you know what is going on in that book. And if you take the book seriously, he's he's really, he's really saying that markets don't really work. That <laughs> on on most of the time, if you leave things to the market, the vast majority of the time, you're going to have what he calls a, a, an a, a unemployment or underemployment equilibrium, meaning. Things will come to rest at a state where things are bad. There'll be a whole lot of unemployed people. Markets won't just work things out on their own. So you need to have the government supplying what he calls aggregate demand in order to, to make the markets work at all. Uh, otherwise, you just you, you don't have a market. You have just sort of this, this machine of misery that kind of grinds on <laughs> without, without any hope. Um, and... Uh, you know, for a long time in the economics profession, I think in part because Keynes was so successful at persuading parts of the economics profession uh, about parts of his ideas, people came to believe actually that that markets did work most of the time, but it's only in these sort of rare periods of crisis where they get they get sort of jostled. There's a, an exogenous shock, is what economists say, meaning something they didn't see coming happens. Mm -hmm. And after that after that shock, then you then you need to make the correction. But most of the time, it works out. And the thing that that I think people kind of forgot over the course of the 20th century is that the government is much more involved in the economy on a day-to-day -day basis than it was in the 1930s. I think at the, at the I don't have the precise numbers in front of me, but at the peak of FDR's peacetime, uh, you know, New Deal work, he was spending something like you know 10 or 11 percent of of the entire output of the economy was coming from the federal government. You know, under Reagan, it was 20 percent. So oh, wow. just mm. just casually. We ended up having just a much, much bigger um, part of of the economy being being supervised or, or running through the government in some way, and we forget that all the time. Um, the government's always managing the economy in some sense. The question is who they manage it for, and, right. and I think we saw that very, uh, <laughs> very clearly in the in the 2008 crash and the response to it. And I think we're seeing it, frankly, in the response to the COVID crash. You know, there have been some good things that the government has done um, for, for working people. I think the expansion of unemployment benefits um, was, beautiful. You know, was, was really, really important thing. And I think changes really changes the way that working people relate to their jobs. Because if you have this, this alternative, right, you can not work and be fine, 
then your boss has got to be better to you, right? Um, yes, and, yes. <laughs> and and that's you know it gives give you some bargaining power. And so, and but you know that was that was sort of rolled out almost I think by accident. I don't think Republicans really realized what they were agreeing to when when that happened. But it was three months, and then they, then they rolled it back, and now we've got sort of a mini version of it that's that's coming back out in for a few months in 2021. But there. It's very clear that the government can just turn on or turn off who it wants to help. And I do yeah. think there's there's been a, a shift in thinking. Can you say that again, please, Zach? Could you please say that again? Because it's, it, it's something that we do try to hammer home here every single freaking episode. But you like the government can help out whoever they want, whenever they want. It, they're, for a long time, people believed or people claimed that there was this very hard limit to how much the government could actually spend total. That if it spent too much, you'd have a you know a 2008 style financial crisis or hyperinflation or something. I don't think economists really believe that anymore. They believe you know maybe if we spend too much, eventually you could have some some sort of like accumulating inflation or something, but not like an, an immediate off a cliff. Now you're 1923 Weimar Germany kind of kind of problem. Um, so the 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 barrier to helping people is not the amount of money that we have in the economy. It's it's the political will to actually do something, <laughs> and and that is uh, I think I, you know frankly I think I think Biden I'm really surprised to hear him say this um, given the way he he talked during the campaign, particularly during the primary you know, last week. He said now's the time to spend trillions of dollars uh, investing <laughs> in 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 our communities and in our people, and it's like yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, frankly, That's I think right. it's always the time, but um, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's back up for a second. And um, uh, who was Keynes? Um, why was he so important? Why did you choose to write a book about this guy who's been dead for you know whatever eighty years? Mm-hmm. Um, and why is he relevant today? Like, what what? And why do you think? Like, I guess just a general who who the hell was this guy? If someone has never heard of him. And what was his um, effect? Yeah, I mean, I, I I got into him during the during the crash. I was uh, I was a banking reporter. I, I started working in two thousand six, uh, and I I was so sad that I had to do it. I'd played in um, punk rock bands before that, and my band got back from tour, and I had to get a real job because I was broke. And uh, and I thought banking. I mean, what what is more boring than covering banking? Uh, in 2006, but it turns out it was actually really a great time to be covering banking because yes. it was about to just explode. And uh, and and I, you know, I I had a fairly conventional, I think, um, view of the economy for a financial journalist at the time. I, I talked to all these sources who said markets usually get it right, and I I knew all these people who traded in the markets and, and gave me their reasons and their sort of elaborate mathematical rationales for, you know, which resources were going to go up or down in value based on what was actually happening in the in the economy and. And you know, I I I I was not like a, a you know, I, I was not like a radical guy. Um, but the, the crash happened, um, and all these people suddenly started saying, "Well, well, now we have to bail out the banks and uh, and 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 do a fiscal stimulus package." And I had kind of the same reaction you just did, was like, "It's it's like, uh, well, wait a minute. I mean, you guys were just saying markets always work, and now you're saying they don't." Um, and and they you know they would they would they would give a, a reason you know they were they weren't idiots um, and and I I don't think they were hypocrites I think they'd actually changed their minds um, I mean they'd changed their minds in a way that happened to be like particularly self interested but you know people funny do, how that works yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but so I just thought well there's no way that they have that these guys are well versed in this new thing 
that they just this religion they've suddenly converted to, right? Like there's no way they they know much about it. So I started trying to read it, and I, I tried to read the general theory, and it's just a really, it's like, it's like trying to chew a bag of nails. It's it's just a really unpleasant read for the most part. Um, so I switched to the economic consequences of the peace, which is a book that Keynes wrote in 1919, critiquing the Treaty of Versailles, which is the the, the document that ended the First World War. And it's and that book is fun to read. It's it's you know, a, a piece of political and economic theory. It's an economic analysis of a diplomatic contract, uh, but it is a it is actually a really exciting, fun, fun read. And it's not too long, which uh, which was helpful for me at the time. So, so I was just sort of taken away by the the sort of sweep and the grandeur of this of this text, which actually has nothing to do with deficits at all. It just says, look, if you if you set up a world in which Germany can't afford has has these these debt obligations through what they call reparations, you know, sort of you're, you're, Germany's responsible for the wars, they gotta pay everybody all this money. If you make Germany pay all this money, they're not gonna be able to afford to, the country's gonna go broke and they're gonna hate all of us. And you are going to breed resentment because you're going to, he didn't use the word austerity, but you are going to create de facto austerity in Germany. You're not gonna let that country sort of get back on its feet economically. And there are all sorts of people who have critiqued the forward policy implications of this of this analysis uh, over time. But but ultimately, I think his economic analysis and his political analysis, psychological insight was was pretty much right. Um, you know, uh, you, you do see Germany economically being crushed uh, at the end of the war and, and immediately afterwards. You do see the rise of this extremely violent, far right, xenophobic party and the Nazis pretty quickly. You have uh, political assassinations and murders that are happening fairly routinely. Uh, and and I do think it was, I mean, I think Keynes was basically right that there was a connection between the type of 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 externally imposed social misery that was that was going on and the the volatile, violent politics that were happening in 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 the country. So I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that was a lot more interesting than debt and deficits. And I just kept reading. And I, I think for this moment, you know, ultimately, I see Keynes as a moral philosopher who sort of happened to stumble into economics because it was a way to exert influence over the political system. He wasn't actually particularly adept at being a, a, a statesman or, or a diplomat for most of his life. If you look at the policy battles he got involved with from 1918 all the way to 1942, maybe, um, he loses just about every single battle he's he's involved in. And but along the way, he creates this huge body of literature explaining why he thinks we should do these particular policies. And he's, he's really more a philosopher of crisis. He's somebody who says, look, if you have social upheaval creates this intense sense of uncertainty among people, and it pushes people towards violence and towards authoritarian politics. And he's, he, he says this is, he spends most of his time focused on the right, but he also does make this critique of, of, of communism in Europe as it's rising at the time. He says, you know, if, if you want to avoid people turning to authoritarian communism in, in, in Europe or, or to fascism in Europe, you need to have a state that's very actively involved in making sure that people feel taken care of materially, that, that their, their needs are being met. And if you don't do that, they're going to revolt, essentially. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, I... And we're not talking about that rinky dink shit in the Capitol last week either. <laughs> we're talking about some well, you real see, shit. I think you see, I mean, but I think you're seeing what, like, the rise of of Trump, you know, a fairly like toxic, uh, ex you know, right wing figure. Mm -hmm. You're seeing the appeal of right wing politics all over Europe as well. Um, in the wake of a crisis, like it's exactly what you're talking about, right? Like that there was a crisis in 2008, and we've seen the rise in far in right wing politics. It's not 
it's not a, you know, it's, it's, uh, it seems fairly straightforward in that sense. That it, I think it, so. Right. And I think this discussion sort of goes off the rails when people start trying to analyze why like any particular person became drawn to, uh, to, to any particular right wing event, like the, the thing the the attack on the Capitol on Wednesday. There are a lot of different groups that are involved in that. Not all of them are like hardcore neo Nazis. There's you know, they they come for 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 different reasons. Um, but but once they show up there, the thing is, once once you get involved in the politics, then people start to to, to sort of take on a new political identity. And and at that point, you know, you, it's not just as simple as giving somebody a check and they're like, oh cool, I'm not a Nazi anymore, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but but um, but the, the the, you can see the, the frustration with the government, the, the belief that the system in some sense, whether it's the international system, um, you know, in, in, in after World War One or the, the just domestic economic, you know, financial and, and political system in, in the United States after after 2008. Uh, although, let's be clear, this is happening all over the world. The, the U.S. isn't the only country that's got a problem with um, with far right politics right now. Um, there are people who are frustrated with the political system. And, and a lot of the things that they say, you know, you couldn't. <laughs> when they say them, you're like, well, you can imagine somebody on the left making, uh, saying a, a, a similar comment in a different context 10 years earlier about, about like the country failing them with the Iraq war or something like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think that these events arise just out of this sort of spontaneous flowering of ill will from people. Right. Um, and, and I think that's different from saying people aren't responsible for their actions, right? Um, and I think Keynes would have would have agreed. But 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 there are policies that the government can pursue to try and <laughs> try and tone things down. But that makes Keynes very different from the, the sort of prevailing um, lefty philosophy at the time was Marxism. It was very popular. It wasn't like a it wasn't like an out there thing. The way no. I think it, it still is in the United States. I I think uh, you know it's it's more uh, I guess publicly accepted today than it was 10 or 15 years ago. But, but you know, it was just very normal to be a Marxist at Cambridge University in, in 1930. Um, it was very clear that the economy was collapsing. And here was a, here was a, a philosophy that said, here's, here's why it doesn't work. And, and most of these people were openly like revolutionary. They would, they would say, you know, yeah, the, the state will always answer to the capitalists. We have no choice but to overthrow them uh, and, to, and to do a new kind of politics. And Keynes did not, did not believe in that. He said, we can use the state Actually, to help working people um, instead of instead of having to you know overthrow things. So he he's he's sort of a political moderate with a social agenda that is is much more closely aligned. That's seen as extreme in today's context. And I do want to ask you because I think it's important for our listeners to understand it on a just like a ground level. Um, why can't or why I want to ask you both things. Why can't or why don't when the Fed comes out and says we're going to guarantee, you know, some financial instrument that's huge in the the um the Wall Street market. Mm -hmm. We're, we're going to we're backing that no matter what. So just so y'all know, you don't have to worry about, say, your bonds, that, that bond market. We're fucking backing that up no matter what. Go out and do all the other shit that you do, <laughs> right? Just know that that part of, you know, your portfolio or whatever is taken care of by us. Why can't or won't the Fed or the government do that for Joe Sixpack? 
Well, in a sense, it does in that there is uh, unemployment unemployment benefits exist, right? We already do this in a small. Uh, <laughs> right. We have programs like like right. SNAP, like food stamps, so people can eat. Um, the, the the problem is that they're very, um, you know, they're they're not particularly. <laughs> I don't want to say generous because I don't think it's it's. I think people living in a democracy have a right to demand that the political system ensure that they live. <laughs> prosperous and healthy lives. I don't think it's an act of generosity to make sure that this Thank happens. You. I think that's just that's just you know what what the government's job is. Um, but but they're 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 insufficient programs. Um, so the, the, in principle, the government does it just it just does, doesn't do right. it very well. And one of the things that uh, that some of the more progressive members of Congress were calling for during the negotiations over how to respond to the coronavirus crash was a, a, a more robust set of what they called automatic stabilizers. So when the unemployment rate gets to a certain level, a certain amount of money starts going out the door to people, no matter what. You don't have to go back to Congress you know, every three months and say, okay, okay, Republicans, what is it that we can get from you this, this month uh, at, at this particular crisis point since the, the aid is running out? Um, you know. It, we sort of govern by we've been governing by crisis since the Obama administration years. There's always some artificial deadline that Congress imposes on itself, right. and then and then they get to the the crisis and they're like, oh God, now we have to make a concession to people we don't want to make uh, <laughs> instead of just creating a policy <laughs> that makes sense. And, and so I, you know, that that could that could be done, and it would cost trillions of dollars, and it would be fine. Uh, I mean, we we do that with we do that with food benefits. We do that with uh, benefits. <laughs> the, the language around it is, 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 is crazy. Yeah. The, like when they, when the Republicans or who, not even just Republicans, with politicians, because Democrats do it too, guys, when they call something entitlements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like as, like, it I don't like even a, know, like, it's got it, like an icky sheen to it, you know? It's, it's, it's like, like a college kid driving a Beamer. You're just like, right, exactly, it's, yeah, yeah. Entitlement <laughs> basically makes it seem like some shit you don't deserve anyway. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like you're into what are you entitled to this? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, it's, this is how old people pay for their medicine. It's not it's not, right. like, it's not right. kids driving sports cars. But like, uh, you know, the, the 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 worry in in the 1920s when Keynes was doing most of his writing was that the government would literally run out of money under the gold standard. Every, you know, piece of paper, every dollar bill or, or you know, mark or, or pound was tied to a specific weight of gold. And you could go to the central bank and say, I want to cash this in for gold at any time. And so what that meant was that if there was a run on your currency, if there was a lack of confidence, or if you just spent too much money, you would run out of gold and then you wouldn't have any more money to spend. And, that, and then you would have a financial crisis. You would have a 2008 style event. And throughout the 20s and into the, into the early 30s, you kept seeing these kind of 2008 style financial crises across Europe as investors would lose confidence in the ability of different countries to cash in their currencies for gold. And so they'd, they'd all dump it and it would actually become a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy as everybody sold out. So there was this very different kind of economic problem tied to the currency, which I think policymakers, economists sort of just have never, you know, they're starting to shake now, but have never quite shaken. If we overspend in the economy now, the thing that you worry about is that you, you actually just end up running the economy too hot. You have people who everybody is employed, uh, everybody that can afford terrible. things. Right. And the prices of goods start going up because everybody can, everybody's got the money to afford to buy them. So they, they sort of bid up the prices in, in this way. Um, and, you know, a little bit of that 
like you say, it's not that big a deal. The Fed is openly saying right now they want to have at least 2% in, inflation for the foreseeable future. They can't even get that trying to do it. Um, yeah. So it's at 1.2%. I think you said in your um, your piece last week when um, when the, the Dems swept Georgia. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, and, and like 2% unemployment, 5%, I mean, sorry, inflation, 5%, 6 or 7% even is... You know, I, I don't think we really want to have 7% unemployment, just unemployment. We definitely don't want to have 7% unemployment, but 7% inflation just for the fun of it. But in terms of like the list of, if you gave me a list of potential problems, like I would take that over <laughs> over millions of people being out of a job any day of the week. Um, and, and the Fed has tools to fight inflation, right? The Fed can take, there are all sorts of things you can do to get infl prevent inflation from going out of control. Uh, one of the things that um, economists did in the 60s and 70s when you had this sort of turn towards neoliberalism and away from from the sort of original thinking of of its original sort of Keynesian thinking that was dominant in in Europe and the United States for you know 1930 to like 1970 let's say um, they would say well if you get a little bit of inflation it automatically kind of quickly goes out of control because the prices get bid up to four percent and then to seven percent and then to ten and then to fifty and then to a thousand. And and when you look at countries that have had hyperinflation crises, you do see these charts where things just really take off all of a sudden. You know, a mark goes from being worth like five dollars to being worth like two cents to being worth like one trillionth of a cent. But most of those hyperinflation crises aren't a result of printing too much money. They are a result of complete collapse of faith in the political system. So in in Weimar Germany, you have you have uh, the French coming and occupying the Rhine, and people believe, okay. This government no longer exists, so this government's currency no longer exists, and it, we can't buy anything with it. So it's 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 there's something going on with those hyperinflation moments that's different from what happens when, you mm. know, okay, we we have we have seven eight percent inflation. And I want to talk to you about the deficit because yeah. I think that um, that is what made us want you on the show the most because. I told people last week, I was like, <laughs> you can set your clock to Joe Biden's inauguration to when we're going to start hearing about deficit, 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 deficit. We didn't hear deficit one fucking time throughout the Trump administration. Like, not one time did that word get uttered by McConnell. Fucking Ron Johnson takes out an op-ed and I think Newsweek or USA Today, one of those shits, and he's talking about, well, the deficit's going to fucking kill you and our children and all of this shit. I want you to try to explain as best as you can what deficit hawks the argument they're trying to make and why it's completely asinine and stupid. So I think there's this sense with the deficit when when this argument is made in good faith, which it often isn't, um, <laughs> there, there, there's a sense that you're, you're creating obligations for the future that the country will have to find a way to pay for, right? Um, and it will pay for them in, in tax revenue. So somehow, if you're getting something today through borrowed money, then you're going to have to tax people tomorrow to make good on it. And the more you borrow, the higher the interest rate and the more, the more pain you're causing in the future. And the, the simple basic problem with with that, without even having to get into like deep Keynesian theories, that the economy is not a static thing, right? And you have things that you have to do day to day to stay alive, to eat, um, that matter to you on those days that can't actually wait. If you wait too long and don't pay your rent, you're going to have a problem, right? <laughs> a big problem. This is why people yes. go to payday lenders, right? Like payday lenders are terrible and bad, but people recognize that getting kicked out of their house is bad, so they, they need to meet this obligation. 
the difference between going to a payday lender to, to get some money to pay your rent and the government borrowing money to help boost the economy is that the economy grows. When you go to a payday lender, you pay your bills. You do not get a raise from your job, right? right. <laughs> when, when the government borrows money and spends it, new economic activity is created. And so you have more stuff happening. And if you want to tax people from it, you can. But there's, there is more wealth that is being created by that actual activity. The, the wealth that people exchange in society is represented by money, but it's not, it's not the piece of paper. Nobody thinks that like, you know, there's, uh, you know, a hundred dollars worth of cotton in a, in a hundred dollar bill. Um, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, labor and risk and blood and sweat is, that is, is the actual value that, that is represented by this thing. And when you have more activity, you, you have a more prosperous society. So there's not this sort of fixed sum of money out there that we have to just sort of divide up over time. In fact, if it, what, what, and this is where you get into the, the, the Keynesian stuff. I mean, one of the points that, that Keynes makes is that if you let uncertainty take over, if you have a crisis, it can feed on itself. And so it, it won't be that, oh, well, eventually, well, you know, he has that famous quote, you know, in the long run, we're all dead. Um, dead. Yeah. We are all dead, but you know, in the meantime, we have, we have, we have to live. And if you, if you wait until things just work themselves out eventually, you know, you could, you could have had, I mean, he's particularly concerned about political upheaval. So he's, he's saying, you know, we could have a revolution or a fascist takeover, um, you know, by, by the time the economy works itself out. And we don't really, that's not something we, we really want, but ultimately you can, you can have lower growth. And that's, that, that's what you see in countries when they turn to austerity, they have, they have lower growth and they have a hard time paying back the loans that they, they received. I mean, throughout the 1990s, when we had all of these financial crises and particularly in Asia, and the IMF would come in and say, here, we'll give you all this money, but only if you cut your budget deficit by a whole bunch. And they would do that, and then they wouldn't be able to pay back the loan because their economies had shrunk. And, <laughs> and so they'd have to like lay off all their teachers. And then, and then they also still couldn't pay off the loan. Because worse, that, yeah. Right, because then their teachers couldn't. You know, so you just had, you had this, um, this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of, of destruction. And I mean, we saw that again after 2008. And you, you look at what happened to Greece. Um, it's the I think the the most glaring example of austerity just not working, but also in the UK uh, and yeah. and really just about every country that um, Angela Merkel sort of uh, beat over the head about uh, with with these austerity policies, um, they they really struggled to, to 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 make ends meet as a result of the austerity policies themselves. And you know sometimes in in Europe it's a little trickier because the austerity policies are often. Um, demanded with a, a bit more, I think, sophistication than they are in the United States. Uh, Greece doesn't have a particularly good tax system. So like rich people dodge taxes in Greece a lot. And so when, when Germany says, you know, you need to, you need to raise taxes, I mean, they, they are largely talking about raising taxes on rich people. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, the policies that were pursued between 2010 and 2015, I mean, were obviously catastrophic. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, the, that, the, the the politics of austerity and, and all this stuff, to the extent that it has any sort of popular understanding or or purchase, it's just because like you see numbers like the national debt and it's like whatever the trillions, you know, mm -hmm. and and it's scary to people like they're like, what? what Like, are you what? Yeah. Like, because they, because they can equate it to their own lives. Like if they have that sense of debt, like the anxiety would just be overwhelming. Um, and to, to, to think that the whole country 
um, is doing that and, and has that, it, it just it makes you think like, well, oh my God, like we can't do anything. That that's crazy. Um, but and and we're gonna see that a lot. Like I think we're gonna see that a lot in the in the coming months, especially as the Biden administration tries to do something um, to respond to the economic crash. Um, but you know, deficits. It, 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 there's a, there's a this is a very common problem. And sorry to right. interrupt. But no, no, not, no. Sorry enough not to interrupt. Uh, you know, there's there's a <laughs> there's this 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 problem where we we people do sort of project their household onto the nation at large. But you know, debt for a, a household is an obligation. For a country, it's a tool. It's a completely different thing. We're not we're not talking about we aggregating. We should invent all these a new word. Together. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they're they're not. It's like they're really like just completely different things. You know, right. Yeah, I think because you know what I think happens to guys is that people here, we borrowed money from China and they think that China, like the money that we borrowed from China is like the money they owe American Express or the money they owe on their car note or the money they owe on their mortgage, right. meaning when or if they default the bank, the repo man, whoever is coming to take that shit back. So Essentially, when China or whoever decides to be the repo man for our yeah. country's debt, they're going to come and take this shit back somehow. That's what I think people envision when they think about our country's debt. I think that's right. And, and, that's, and I think you're right that people think that. And, and it's, it's wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's a different, it's just not, it's different just not kind of thing. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. You're, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I, when people ask me about this stuff, like I'm not as well-versed on economic policy as you are, um, Zach. But when people ask me this stuff, I, I always just got to say, like, trust me, it's just not going to, it's like not a problem. It's not going to happen. Like for me to try to explain to you why would be, would take a long time and it would be really boring. And, um, and it's, I don't even have the best arguments for it, but it's just, I, it's but just you know, wrong. what's so crazy, Nando. <laughs> I tell people, I'm like, what you think a ch basically 800 billion or $750 billion a year in military spending. And you think China could just come pick up their check when they want to. You really think that? Give me my fucking money. Like, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, you guys are joking, but I mean, the, the basic, the dollar is a, is a, a, a thing that exists as part of like international diplomacy. The, right. the thing that we right. call the economy, the stuff that we call economic policymaking is, is domestic social management and and international diplomacy. It's those two things. And the fact that it involves money, you know, is you know that that is that is the the, the means through which this stuff is executed. But um, you know, we're we're talking about diplomacy, you know, uh, and and China doesn't want like China doesn't want to make the United States default on its debt. That is a problem, not only for China, but for the whole world, because it creates massive instability, right? <laughs> so there will always, you know, we also just don't owe that much to China. I mean, we, we owe like, something like 8% 8 of our of our debt is uh, is in in foreign hands. So it's it's mostly money that we, we owe to Americans to, to the extent that we owe it to anybody. Uh, to anybody, you know, right. Uh, but, but really, Beautiful. we owe it. I mean, we have this thing called the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve exists to manage the currency. It can buy as much U.S. government debt as it wants, and it often does. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, uh, you, you mentioned um, back in the, in the days of the gold standard, there was this thing that like there was like physical gold uh, that the government had and they, that's like money. And now, but 
that that's no longer the case. And, and we saw like with the CARES Act, which I know you've written a lot about, where the Federal Reserve just kind of like in 15 seconds, just like, oh, here's tr like make trillions of dollars just happen. And it's just like numbers on a computer going from one thing to another. And all of a sudden there's money. Like it's it really mm -hmm. is kind of like you know, not to sound like it really is like a social construct, man, you know, like, or something. It just, it's... <laughs> no, but it is, right, yeah. <laughs> it is, right? And, and it's like, it's just a thing that, it's it's hard to, it's really hard to understand on some level. Like, it's like, our brains, like, don't work that way, in a way, to, like, understand that it is just something that can be created out of thin air, but then has this incredible power over literally everything. The and there and there and there are you know some rules by which it operates and there, and and I you know there are limits as to how much money you can actually invent and put out in, into into the world but there are also pretty clear signs that when you've got too much out there um, that you you see the economy overheating you see inflation taking off and we don't see anything close to that right now and and it's it's just important to remember that inflation is a is a it's a policy choice it's 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 not it's not this sort of brick wall disaster that you hit that thing it's over. Um, you can you can do different. You, I mean, throughout the the 1950s and 1960s, uh, Keynesian policymakers believed they had to sort of balance inflation and, and unemployment. They they believed in this thing called the Phillips curve, which turned out to be not true, to, to be sort of fictional. But um, but they believed there was if, if you had more unemployment, you would have less inflation automatically. But if you had more inflation, you'd have less unemployment. So they tried to balance the two at a certain level. Um, you know that ultimately was a was sort of chimerical, but at that time they un they understood inflation as like you know one of many problems that society could balance with with others, and I think that that basic thinking is important when you're looking at it, it's been used since as a way of saying oh well that's you know it would be nice if we could afford nice things and people didn't have to live in poverty, but inflation uh, and and <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think that's the I, I actually I think even in at, at places like the Fed that um, that thinking has has faded quite a bit over the last few years since since the crisis. You know, there, there were people saying, if you believe this 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 talk about you know debt and deficits leading to financial crises and hyperinflation, I mean, two thousand nine, we we should have seen it, right? We had this huge bank bailout, should have seen and it. And we had yeah. this huge this huge uh, you know uh, fiscal relief package, uh, and and we didn't we didn't see anything close to to inflation. Which is if you go back and read you know the Wall Street Journal from two thousand nine two thousand ten, there are all of these. All of these predictions from very, you know, important people, policymakers, economists, saying, "Well, the price of grains went up by a half point. That's the canary in the coal mine. It's, right, it's coming. Right, Hyperinflation right. player on the corner." By like 2013, they really stopped doing it. But all of those predictions turned out to be wrong. And I don't think, I don't think those particular mm. individuals have come forward and sort of offered an explanation. Of course not. But but the overall worldview of the profession well, has has shifted. Like. Nobody writes essays every day saying, oh, those people were all wrong 10 years ago. But they do say, I believe we have more headroom for fiscal policy than we previously believed. Right. Like that. And it strikes me as as, as a funny kind of irony in a way, because um, that Obama was like this incredibly um, resplendent figure, transcendent figure in some way, um, inspiring figure. But because of this like insane idea that you're talking about, like his presidency probably will go down as like mostly a, in some ways like a failure. Whereas, and now we have Joe Biden who couldn't be a less inspiring figure. And, a, you know, like he, <laughs> yeah. he couldn't be more opposite to Obama in every way as a figure. Um, like just no one is inspired by Joe Biden. He is just literally, but if 
just like as a matter of sheer dumb luck, like if this kind of dangerous idea, this obsession with inflation, if it's true that it really has kind of um, changed amongst elite policymakers, that the Biden presidency might come out, turn out to be, you know, uh, a, a, a more successful one than an Obama, because if he, if he does, if they do do the kinds of economic relief that is necessary to address this crisis, Biden will be popular. Like it's just, oh, yeah. that's just how it works. Um, and so it's just a funny kind of, it's just, it's just like a funny irony to me, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and I think, you know, I, I, it's been a really bad like 10 years. So it's, it's tough to, to muster <laughs> too much optimism, but I, I do think, I, you know, I think what we've seen from the, from the administration and also from the Senate on economic policy the last couple of weeks is, is, is promising. I mean, Chuck Schumer saying they're going to do serious stuff on healthcare and climate change. I mean, we'll see what it is. Uh, but you know, that's I mean, a, it's Chuck Schumer, so you can't never get too excited about anything. No. But it's better than him saying we can't afford right. it, guys. We just can't afford right. it. Okay, so that's that's what I want to get into, um, Zach, before we get you out of here. I want to read you something that you wrote in that same piece about the Dems taking Georgia and what it means for them to control the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. And you said, we're South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, Singapore and other places swiftly implemented effective measures to avert both mass death and economic calamity, the United States has been an uncoordinated and morally callous disgrace. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you. I love that you said that. But the reason why I bring that quote, Zach, is because I think me and Nando tend to have reputations with the people who fuck with this show and know us online and things like that for being flaming haired lefty crazy psychopaths <laughs> who just want to kill centrists which is mostly true but can you please explain to people how they should feel about democrats who might or would come out with tepid ideas or responses to the economic reality that faces how should people feel about Timid motherfucking Democrats, please. You know, it's funny because I, I really find myself, one of the reasons I wrote the book about Keynes is because I, you know, I don't think I'm inherently like still like a super radical guy. I, I, I get where like a lot of- <laughs> You were in a punk rock band, dude. Come true. on, That's come true. to the dark yeah. side, That's Zach. <laughs> uh, You're I'm halfway little, there. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little, like, I'm a little curious, right? And um, and I think I think Keynes was too. He 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 saw the moral vision from from people on the left and said, yeah, that's that's basically right. That's that's the world that we want that we want to make happen. But he was very cautious about um, about how to get there and, and very frightened of social upheaval and and of he he really believed that upheaval basically was a was an automatic win for the right. Um, and I don't know if he was correct about that. I think he might have ultimately been overly cautious, but um, but but I, I I get where he's coming from on on that stuff and uh, and I, I do think you know there's a sense in which our problems are not just like I, I are not just baked into like the structure of of capitalism or colonialism or like you know a thousand years of like human oppression like we could just choose a different way we could just do things differently we're not we're not just totally condemned by you know structural forces beyond our control um, and. I think in this particular moment, you know, there's an awful lot that you can do 
using the pandemic as a legitimate pretext for for pretty expansive action. I mean, if you we saw what went wrong in this in this crisis, it wasn't just that people got sick and died. Our, we don't have enough hospitals. Like we just don't. <laughs> we need to yeah. build more hospitals, right? We need to. We need. We we clearly have a huge problem with the way global supply chains work. I mean, we had nurses treating people in plastic ba- in trash bags. Uh, I mean, that is a complete disgrace. Uh, and that's that's a result of you know a, an economy that's based entirely on offshoring, where where you're just trying to squeeze every last dime you can from labor costs at every at every possible moment, uh, and and not worrying at all about you know how fragile your 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 system is. Um, there are big changes that need to be made to the country in order to to actually address the, just the public health aspect of of this moment. The, you know, the economic side side of all of this, with you know whether you do UBI and and the like. You know, obviously you can't let people just you know <laughs> if, if you if you let working people default on all of their bills and get kicked out of their houses, then eventually you know, the rentiers are going to start feeling the pinch too. So you, you don't actually want to do that either, even if you're just uh, looking out for, for the, you know, the professional class in some way. Um, so I, I just think Democrats have to recognize that they don't get a lot, they won't get a lot of bites at the apple on this one. You know, Obama got one shot. Biden might get a couple um, because there are so many different crises happening at, at the moment that Republicans may be willing to play ball. And even if they aren't, you can, you can do things through reconciliation. I mean, there's, on fiscal policy, especially, I mean, you can just get this stuff done with 50, 51 votes. Hmm. You don't, you don't even hmm. have to repeal the filibuster to do it. Although I do think filibuster hmm. is a barrier to progress in general. Um, but they don't even they don't have to repeal the filibuster to to get it. So this is an opportunity for Democrats to <laughs> to really make the world a better place for the people who they oh, who they man. represent. And it will cost a lot of money, <laughs> and it will be fine. <laughs> you are probably my single favorite guest who's ever come on this show i know it's just you anna and like one <laughs> other person <laughs> but listen here's why because like right now and and we see this happen all the time with stuff and i know nando you understand this too there's some passion there's some fire you've seen it remember when kamala harris fucking authored a bill that said $2,000 for each and every American under 75 G's. And then they got elected and she went fucking quiet about it. Yeah. Right? Like we see them do this shit all the time. So I just want the people who listen to this show to understand when we come out and we talk shit about these centrist establishment Dems who might come out and say some dumb shit about a balanced budget or might utter the fucking deficit, the D word, the deficit word, and want to rip out our heads. Zach just beautifully, eloquently articulated why that's fucking bullshit. If you hear them say anything about, well, we have to be financially responsible and blah, 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 you know what's going on. <laughs> it's not based on reality. Yeah. Well, um, I think that that's a good place to to wrap it up. Uh, Zach, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, big fan of your work. You know, I have to admit, uh, uh, I have not yet read your book, but it's next on my queue. I finished Reaganland, uh, which took me forever because it was long as hell. Uh, but your book is next on my queue, uh, The Price of Peace. It's a biography of John Maynard Keynes. Um, it's been, like, I, again, I, I can't stress enough, just... I don't think I can't remember a, a book about 
economics being this hot. Like it's like all year end lists is very well reviewed. You know, it's so the guy's a fucking genius, Nando. What do you want? There you go. <laughs> so if you're listening to this show and you want to learn a thing or two uh, about it, how it, how a world can be a different world can be constructed, uh, a more humane world, a better world, check out the Price of Peace uh, biography of John Maynard Keynes. Zach, thank you so so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And guys, man, we'll see you guys next week. Make sure you're checking out every single other offering on the bomb feed, whether that be Wednesday service, whether that be the OG show, whether that be growing up the same. Make sure you're checking out all things count the dings, man. Again, we want to thank our boy Zach, Zach Carter for coming on. Uh, Fernando Vila for Rob Lopez on the ones and threes. We're out of here. Peace. Love you. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.